Uh, the sermon text for tonight is the uh, epistle reading from this past Sunday as well, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. In many and various ways God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So I preached on Sunday about uh, 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 suffering, a Christ call to, uh, you know, first of all, the announcement that he is the Messiah, and then he tells Peter and us what that means, the Messiah is the suffering one, and then his invitation to join him on the path of suffering, to take up our crosses and follow him. And what I wanted to do tonight was to go over to the epistle reading from this past Sunday, and talk about how this can be a positive for us and not an ultimate negative. Suffering's always negative. There's nothing good, there's nothing perfectly good about suffering. It's, 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 it's whistling in the graveyard to say, oh, I don't mind, you know, just all things work together for good. But it can be positive. Our suffering can be a positive. And so what I want to talk tonight is how we can boast about, it, how we can boast in our sufferings. Paul uses the word boast here three times. And the, the key, the, the, the middle of it here is verse three, we boast in our sufferings. How can we do that? So uh, three things, because first of all, we can boast in our suffering because Christian suffering leads to glory. Christian suffering, there's a trajectory to it and it leads to glory. And you see what he says here in verse two, at the end of verse two, he says, we boast in hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, Glory of God is in Romans 5 through 8. You'll just have to take my word for it because I'm not going to look at the whole of Romans 5 through 8. It's code, it's shorthand for new creation. The glory, we, we, it gets unpacked and unfolded all the way over in Romans chapter 8. He finally gets to his, uh, he, he sets, he kind of gives us a table of contents here in Romans 5. And then he finally gets to Romans 8 where he talks about the glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus returns. New creation glory. The hope that you and I, who are Christians, have for new creation glory, this is what he's talking about here. This is what he's talking about. And this hope is different than, it puts a different spin on suffering than anybody else has. We can boast in our suffering because our suffering actually has hope at the end of it. Chuck and I recorded a podcast a couple days ago, and um, the episode was about uh, Stoicism. Somebody asked us to talk about Stoicism, and it's a good topic. 
Stoics believed in embracing a life of suffering and uh, similar to what the existentialists do. Suffering, you can't control it. The universe is what it is. For the existentialists, the universe is random. There's, there's no meaning or purpose to it. Everybody's going to suffer. There's nothing you can do. It's a, a, a roll of the cosmic dice and you get cancer. A roll of the cosmic dice, you lose your job. For the, the, for the Stoics, the whole universe is God. And so whatever happens is what's supposed to happen. So you lose your leg in a car accident. That's what was supposed to happen. You just have to kind of deal with it. You know, stick out your lower lip and gut it out. That's, that's one way to deal with suffering, but it's hopeless. It's, it's not too much different than just caving into the sorrow of suffering. Because in both cases, there's no purpose to it. It's meaningless. There's nothing that you can do about it. For Christians, though, suffering is headed towards a goal. It has meaning and purpose. I'm not telling you that you can figure out exactly what the meaning and purpose is. That's not necessarily clear, ever. You might never know why it is that your mom died when you were very young. You might never know, like, well, here's, here's what the benefit of it was. But you do know from here that it's headed towards a trajectory. Let me, show you what, let me show you what Paul means here. Verse three, we boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance. You suffer and it trains you to be committed over a long path. This is what endurance is. To stick with the plan, God's plan of salvation, on this path no matter what happens. And this endurance produces character. It doesn't just mean like, good character qualities. The word that's, that's translated character has to do with the notion of being tested and being able to succeed, being able to pass a test. Suffering produces endurance, and the point of endurance is you can pass the test. I'll, I'll give you an illustration in a minute about what that looks like. And this character, this ability to pass the test produces the hope. We're headed towards new creation. We're headed towards the goal. Our suffering has purpose because it's leading us a certain direction. Is suffering random or does it have a good end to it? That's the question that we're talking about here. So let me give you an illustration. A football player's workout, no pain, no gain. If you want to be a good football player, you're going to have to lift weights. You're going to have to go to the gym. Let's filter what Paul is saying here through that illustration. And it's not perfect. I, I, I know that like, you know, lifting, you know, doing bench presses is not the same as losing your mom to cancer, I know. But just play along with the, the, the illustration here. So this suffering, the suffering of going to the gym, and for a lot of people, working out is suffering. It is suffering, except for there are some people for whom it's not suffering. And the reason why it's not suffering for those people is because they sense the purpose of it. They sense the trajectory of it. They know that working out at the gym, that suffering produces endurance. That if they want to be able to play the whole football season and stay healthy, to be in the whole game, to be playing on the offensive line all the way into the fourth quarter and not be winded, that they're going to have to suffer. If they just stop in the gym and think, what am I doing to myself? This is insane. This hurts. They could shake their fist at the cosmic workout gods and say, why are you doing this to me? But football players don't do that because they know I need this to have endurance. And that endurance produces character. 
when it's time to be tested, at the end of the game, when every last bit of your effort matters, that endurance that you've gotten through the suffering is going to pay off. And that produces hope. The hope that I'm working out because I want to win football games, or at least I want to play successfully in football games. There's a purpose to it. Our purpose as Christians, and this is not an exact parallel, I know, but our purpose, for suffering for Christians is more like working out to play football than it is the existentialist or the stoic suffering, where a random junk happens and what are you going to do? You just got to grin and bear it, or you shake your fist at the sky. Why is this happening to me? Which Christians do this. Lots of us do this. Something bad happens to us Christians, and we're like, God, why are you doing this? Where are you at in this? Or alternatively, we do the pious, stoic thing. Like, it's all, all things work together for good. To God be the glory, which doesn't actually embrace the suffering either. It's a way of keeping it at arm's length. It's a way of not building up endurance, not building up character, not building up hope, because you're too spiritual to feel those sorts of things. In both cases, we're missing the point of suffering, and it cuts us off from the ability to boast, to boast in our suffering, to say, this is who I am. I am in Jesus Christ, and I don't like to suffer, but he's building up something special in me that's headed towards new creation. Don't ever, pro tip, don't ever suffer. We're all going to suffer. Do not ever suffer without connecting your suffering to the new creation. Don't ever suffer randomly. Always say this is headed somewhere. It could be the loss of a relationship you get broke up with, or somebody you were close to pulls away from you for some reason, or you get in a fight with somebody who you were intimate with, and it spoils the whole relationship. And one thing you can do is you can say, oh, that's like, I hate that. I've got to get that relationship back or I've got to get a new relationship to replace it. And I'm not saying that either one of those things are bad, but if that's the, if that's the main meaning of your pain is like, I'm suffering, I just got to get this fixed, and not, I am headed towards a person and a place where there is deep reconciliation in the gospel. I can embrace this because this is, I don't like this. Probably this was caused by sin, my sin and their sin. And yet, I can hang in there I can build up the endurance, I can build up the character because I have the hope that Jesus is going to fix this someday. Same thing with losing a loved one to death. Too often Christians get trapped in their grief. They can't escape it because all they can think about is, I need that person here. And of course that's understandable. And of course you don't wanna not think that. You do need the person there. But you constantly, as a Christian, we constantly have to be reminding ourselves that this can't stop here in my little sphere of life right now. That this is headed towards new creation when God raises those who are in him from the dead and reunites us with them. Does it actually fix the suffering? No, it doesn't. But it puts you on the trajectory that the football player is on to say, I am building endurance, I'm building character, I have hope. I could, I could give you other examples here too. Um, physical pain is this way. Struggling against sin is this way. Struggling against sin. Don't ever lose new creation hope that I am headed towards absolute holiness. That's my destiny. And don't give up the struggle. Anyway, we need to move on. Uh, you can boast in your suffering because it's headed towards hope. Second thing, we can boast in our suffering because God actually likes to help suffering people. He likes to help suffering people. Now, it's kind of a throwaway line, maybe you think. Well, yeah, yeah, duh, of course he does. 
But l- let me talk about it for a few minutes from Romans 5 and then point out how we, we all kind of maybe agree to that, those of you who are Christians, but we don't actually live like it. All right, so verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. I can't, again, I, I know that you're like, oh, that's nice and pious. That's the kind of thing like in saying that everybody's just kind of, oh yeah, Jesus stuff. I, I wish that I could impress upon you how revolutionary this was in the ancient world. The historian Tom Holland calls this, he calls the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus and what flows out of that in, in the New Testament. He calls that the valorization of victimhood. And what he means by that is this, is that in the ancient world, the victims were to be discarded. The victims had shown themselves weak. And in in, in historical type of survival of the fittest, what you do with the weakest is you kill them off or you enslave them. That's what you do. It's the way it always was. The gods never favored the weak. That would be disgusting to the Greeks and to the Romans. And to, and to the Egyptians, too, in the Mesopotamians. The notions that the gods favored the weak. The gods did not favor the weak. The gods favored those who could favor them. The gods favored the strong. And you could tell they did because the strong were strong and the weak were weak. With Christianity, though, the notion that people would worship a crucified slave turns the entire cultural system of the ancient world upside down that our God would like the weak. It's funny too, uh, and more and more people are noticing this, Christians and, and, and seculars, people are noticing this. It's the kind of thing we all just take for granted now. You know, if you see a commercial on TV for St. Jude's Hospital, you're like, oh, wow. Or if you think about people that adopt kids out of troubled situations. Or if you think about people who put time and energy into homeless shelters. Or into working with kids who have Down syndrome or who volunteer or work for really, really poor pay at nursing homes, we all kind of think, oh, that's really good. And the secular world for the past 50 or 60 years has gotten rid of the Christianity and just assumed that's the way we all are, we're all nice. And actually, like the historian Tom Holland and many other people point out, no, that's actually only Christian. (laughs) The notion that the weak deserve love, that while we were weak, God favored us completely countercultural, completely revolutionary in the ancient world. And we need to get back to where we're feeling the weight of that still today. That this does not make any sense, people. That not many of us were wise and not many of us are strong, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. And yet, God has given us his wisdom and his strength. God likes the weak. God likes the suffering. He says in verse uh, uh, 7, it's kind of a weird verse, and I just set it up for you, because it doesn't make any sense if you think about it in terms of morality. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What the heck does that mean? People would never die for a righteous person? For a good person, they might die. Well, if you're thinking of like morally, it doesn't make any sense. But what Paul means here is most likely this. A righteous person is somebody who's a do-gooder, somebody who does everything correct, an upstanding citizen. A good person is somebody who's kind. Like the word for goodness there has to do with like generosity to the other. What would motivate you to die for somebody 
Would you die for a person because they were a great citizen? If it came down to it, probably not if you didn't have any other connection. That's not ever really motivated anybody. Somebody's like upstanding character has never motivated somebody to die for them. What about for somebody who's kind? Maybe more likely. That's why Paul says, maybe for a good person, some would even dare to die. People don't die for other people that often unless there's some sort of deep love commitment there. You would die for your kids. Maybe a best friend. Probably for me, you would take a bullet. I'm hoping. Uh, I'm assuming that you, because you didn't laugh that you actually are taking that seriously. But what about God, though? What's his standard for how, for who he would die for? Well, it's, it, it's the same. There's a deep love commitment. While we were still sinners, verse 8 says, he died for us. While we were rebels against him, again, this is not the way the ancient world work. Caesar would never sacrifice himself for somebody who is rebellious against him. You, you guys have read the New Testament. You know what happens to people who are rebellious against Caesar. That's what the cross was invented for. The gods wouldn't either. You cross Zeus, you're going to get blown up. But while we were weak, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, Jesus died for us. It does not say, for God so hated the world. Sometimes we talk about it like this. God was so angry at the world that he blew up his son. And it's this, this weird, weird notion about like, well, God's real angry with us, but at least he blew up his son instead of us so we can be saved. That's not what the Bible says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love, it says back in verse five, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But God, verse eight, shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All, all of that was set up to this one line, and then we'll move on. Don't believe the lie that your suffering means that God is unhappy with you. God likes the sufferers. When you suffer, far from meaning that, far from being the, 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 far from being the fact that, far from being, what am I trying to say here? It's far from the notion that God is angry with you. And it's much more the case that when you suffer, it pulls God's heart out towards you. He, unlike any other God in the ancient world, unlike any other God in this world, human or otherwise, loves the weak. He loves the sufferers. And when your heart is broken, he loves you intensely because your heart is broken. When you are trapped in a sin that you just can't shake, he's not angry at you. He loves you even more. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, you can boast in your suffering, whether it's suffering, you know, physical suffering, relational suffering, whether it's moral suffering, struggling with sin, you can boast in your sufferings because when you are weak, Christ is strong, 2 Corinthians. Christ likes suffering people. Last thing will be done. Because we've been reconciled to the suffering one. You can boast in your suffering because we have now been reconciled to the suffering one. Let me show you what I mean. It's a little bit roundabout here. Verse 11, the last verse. More than that, we also boast. I know your bulletin says rejoice. The ESV translates it rejoice. It's actually the same word as boast back in verse three. 
and in verse two. More than that, we also boast in God. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've received reconciliation with God. You and God are tight now. I'm not saying you feel like that, but you're tight with God now. You are one with him. This is the bookend to verse one, where he says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you're at, if you're a Christian, you are tight with God. You are one with him. And again, I'm gonna say this again. It does not matter what you feel like. You might feel like God is far away. You might have blown God off for the past 10 years and you think, well, that's what I deserve. He's not close to me. That's not true. You've been justified by faith. You have peace with God. He has worked reconciliation between you and him. Well, how does he do this? Well, he justifies us. That's what the very beginning of the chapter is all about. Since we have been justified by faith, that means God looks at you and he says, you are just what I want. Because he looks at you and he sees you in Jesus Christ. And the reconciliation, reconciliation's wrong. Uh, maybe it's not, I don't know. The relationship that the Father and the Son have together is now the exact same relationship that you and the Father have in Jesus Christ. You are his daughter. And when, when we say Jesus is God's son and you are his daughter, we mean that, that you and Jesus are brother and sister. You and Jesus are brother and brother. You have reconciliation with God. So that, what does that mean? If you're on intimate terms with somebody, including God, which you are if you've been reconciled to him by justification by faith, you share suffering. When you suffer, the person you're intimate with suffers. And when they suffer, you're suffer. When they suffer, you suffer with them. This is the way relationships work. Like if, if you wake up in the middle of the night and your one-year-old is screaming because their stomach hurts real bad, you suffer right along with them. When you're married and your, boss get, and your spouse gets fired, you suffer right along with them. It's a mutual sharing of suffering. This is just, it, 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 the suffering itself becomes a focal point of intimate relationship. It becomes something that's shared. So um, th this is Angela's story, but, but I'll, I'll tell it. Um, Angela's brother passed away and uh, suddenly, and um, we were at the funeral, and lots and lots of Angela's friends were there and family, people that she, people that she was super close to. There was somebody there that, that we, we wouldn't describe her as being super close to. It was the publisher, not her, her, her editor, the main boss, but the publisher of the newspaper, the St. Louis Business Journal that she wrote for was there. And she came to the funeral. She had just previously, within the past year or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, had lost her son, um, was like out, out, out in the ocean swimming, and he drowned. I think that's, he drowned in the ocean. I can't remember what the details were. But I remember, so Angela, like her, all of her friends that she's super close with are there. But when her boss walked in, Angela went right to her and they like hugged and held on to each other for a long time because there was something that bound them together. This, this deep, deep loss. And now you guys have been reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. And he knows about deep, deep loss. He, know, he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends. He knows what it's like to be killed. 
And he shares that with you. And when you're suffering, you're not far away from him. You are actually crucified with him and he with you. This is what reconciliation with God means. It's, it's, a, it's a sign that you've been connected. Your suffering is a sign that you've been connected to Jesus. And, and now you might ask, well, lots of people suffer. Does it work that way for them too? Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends. It depends on the whole justification by faith thing. Do you believe that when Jesus Christ was crucified, you were crucified with him? If so, then your suffering becomes his suffering, and his suffering becomes your suffering. And it's a way to share relationship with him. You, it, doesn't make, it wouldn't make any sense for Angela to see her boss walk into the funeral home and think, oh, she must be mad at me because I lost a family member too. It's just nonsensical. So why is it that we think that way about God? when we suffer, that he's somewhere far away or that he doesn't like us or that he's upset with us? Is he upset with you about your sin? He knows what it's like. to. He's already carried your sin on the cross. He already knows what it's like. And more than that, he's carried the entire evil of the whole world. He's not upset with you. He wants you to share that with him. And you can boast in this because your suffering is not random. It's connected to the Messiah. It's connected to the Messiah who suffers. It's connected to the Messiah who suffers and loves suffering people. It's connected to the Messiah who suffers and loves suffering people and has a plan of hope in place to redeem it all and bring about new creation. Somehow, mysteriously, through his son's suffering and through our suffering shared with him. And this is tied to our justification by faith. You'll only get this. If you are not justified by faith, your suffering will be random. It'll be purposeless. And your only tool will be just to gut it out. But if you've been justified by faith and you're connected to Jesus, there's all kinds of hope there. It doesn't make it, doesn't make it less painful, but it gives it purpose and meaning. One last line, and this is it, will be done. I'm gonna quote from Philippians 3. I did this on Sunday, I would do it again. Paul says, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is justification by faith. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. This is what Paul does with his suffering. What does his suffering mean? It means I get to know Jesus. I get intimacy with the God who loved me and gave himself for me while I was still weak. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. For what reason, Paul? that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that I may have that hope of future glory. That's how we boast in our sufferings. All right, let's stand and sing the Magnificat together.